Hello there, and thanks ever so much for joining us for this webinar. Um, we are going to talk this evening about the Synodal Pathway, Good News for Catholic Women. Um, and I'd like to introduce you to Natalie Watson, Dr. Natalie Watson, um, who's the publishing editor of the Pastoral Review. Um, she'll be in conversation with our panel. And um, if I hand over to Natalie, she can now talk to you about the, uh, the panel and the way the evening's going to work. Thank you very much, Natalie. Natalie, you're on mute. Yeah, sorry about that. Um, thank you, Amanda. Um, a very warm welcome uh, to all of you um, for this evening of um, conversation about um, the Sonoda Pathway, good news for Catholic women. Um, there is a question mark at the end of it. So hopefully we'll um, discover a bit more about uh, what that might mean. Um, tonight's event is sponsored by the Jesuits in Britain, by Root and Branch, and by Hinsley Hall, a hotel and pastoral and conference centre in the Diocese of Leeds. Um, and uh, just to tell you what's going to happen this evening, um, we're first of all going to hear from the four members of our panel, uh, and I'm going to introduce them as they come in. Um, and then we're going to have some conversation hopefully between the members of our panel um, uh, talking from their different angles and there's also going to be an opportunity for all of you um, if you wish to ask questions or make comments if you put your questions or comment in comments in the chat um, I will see them and I will read them out um, and ask some questions um, uh, ask, ask questions to our panel um, uh, just to say that we're uh, recording this evening's event um, and that it will be available as a podcast. Um, it will be on the Tablet YouTube channel. Um, so uh, there will be an opportunity to hear it again or to share it with others uh, as well. So um, let's make a start. We've still got people coming in. Um, we've got quite a big crowd this evening. Uh, which is wonderful to see. The first member of our panel is um, Professor Tina Beatty, who's a theologian, writer, and, and broadcaster. Um, you can hear her on uh, BBC Thought for the Day, for example. Um, until two, uh, August 2020, she was Professor of Catholic Studies at the University of Roehampton in London, and also Director of Bigby Stewart Research Center for Religion, Society, and Human Flourishing um, and um, she's now in retirement and uh, remains director of the Catherine of Siena College at the University of Roehampton, and she is writing fiction as well. Um, so, um, Tina, over to you. Thank you. Well, the Synod Good News for Women, I think it's fair to say that there's an enormously mixed reaction that many, many women feel, I think, deservedly quite skeptical about whether this is good news for women, but also very aware that one way to be sure we won't be heard is to say nothing. So uh, with my sort of networks around the world, I'm very aware of the enormous vitality and energy and commitment 
going into this by women who are organizing gatherings in their parishes, who are getting involved in the events and consultations organized by their diocese and parish priests, who are organizing their own networks and groups and to providing feedback to the synod process. So there is going to be absolutely no shortage of opportunities to listen to women if they have ears to hear. But the big question is, do they? And that's where I think some of the skepticism comes in, that women have had so much experience in the church of raising our voices, trying to be heard, speaking out. And very often it's only those who are saying what the senior members of the hierarchy and the bishops want to hear. And there is the risk of that again now. I'm not in any sense saying that the voices of more conservative women don't have as much right to be heard as anybody else, but they have a head start. They're already um, ahead because they are not um, causing any consternation, setting cats among pigeons, raising questions about the most neuralgic issues that affect women's lives, but are rather offering a sort of tick box exercise to what's already being done. And the risk is that the women who are not doing that will be marginalized and excluded by the voices who are. It's also important to recognize that the pandemic obviously for everyone in the world has been a huge challenge, but I think particularly for Catholic women who remain in some sense committed practicing um, in touch with the church, and of course many aren't, and there's a question about how will they be listened to, but for those of us who do, the past two years have been challenging, often very lonely and cut off from our parishes and Christian communities, but in another way, they've been very creative. Women have discovered within themselves resources for uh, nurturing faith and keeping faith alive, whether it's just by being priests of the domestic world with families who would otherwise be going to mass and turning the meal table into the Eucharistic feast, or whether it's those of us who have been meeting around the world on Zoom and finding that we have a sort of deepening and something is happening to our faith that's making us very aware we don't have to go back into hierarchical setups where we feel excluded, ignored, patronized, or even abused, if not um, sort of abused in the obvious sexual way. But, you know, there are many forms of spiritual abuse that women are familiar with every day, really, if they're practicing Catholics. So these are huge issues. There are huge opportunities. The world of Catholic women is a vastly diverse, interesting and engaged world. And, you know, maybe we'll come on to that later around the world. Different women are finding different ways to feedback. So is it good news for women? Well, the fruits of the spirit <laughs> will reveal themselves. But I think if this proves not to be good news for women, if we only hear what we're permitted to hear, if the process of having to submit everything through the hierarchy means a weeding out of voices they don't want to hear and no uncomfortable things come out at the end about sacramentality, about reproductive issues, about ordination, birth control, etc., LGBTQ issues. If none of that is on the agenda, we'll know we haven't been heard. And I think many, many women will say this is the last straw. So a lot hangs on this. It's a time of crisis spelt with a K.
You're muted. You're muted, Natalie. Thank you very much, um, Tina, for um, uh, such a great start to, to our discussion. Um, I'm now going to hand over to um, Daisy. Daisy Serblin um, is uh, the director, the CEO of um, the Catholic charity Million Minutes. Um, Daisy has worked across advocacy, policy, and campaigns at organizations like Christian Aid, Child Poverty Action Group, the Fabian Society, and Gingerbread, um, a charity for single parents, um, and also as a senior researcher um, to a London um, MP. Daisy grew up in the Croatian Catholic diaspora community in London and is of Croatian and Lebanese heritage and lives in the parish of Hartford. Daisy, over to you. Thank you so much, uh, Natalie. Uh, good evening, everyone. Um, and thank you to the tablet and for the sponsors for convening and hosting this really important discussion. Um, as Tina has outlined, it really is make or break. Um, it's a real privilege to, for me to be here today um, and speaking on this amazing panel about this vitally important subject. Um, so tonight I wanna to talk a bit about my own story as a Catholic woman and as the first female CEO of my organisation, and then also about the sort of listening that we're trying to do at Million Minutes. Um, I'm no theologian or expert, I just happen to be a young woman working with the Catholic Church as an organisation that's trying to push for a cultural shift for young people, of which women can obviously benefit. Um, as Natalie mentioned, um, I'm Lebanese and Croatian, I'm 30 years old, I'm from a working class background, I'm state educated, I'm a woman and I am a Catholic and I'm a feminist. Um, I'm a previously lapsed Catholic and one of the many young women who wake up and look at the church and think to themselves, do I really have the energy to deal with all of this again? Um, at, at the moment, the answer is yes. I'm also the CEO of an amazing Catholic youth social action charity, which seeks to create the sort of church with open doors and a heart for all young people that Pope Francis has spoken so often about. As part of this, we often, we often talk to the peripheries of the church, which sadly seems to include the experiences of women. This is even more true when intersectional identities come up, those of age, marital status, motherhood, race, class, education, sexuality, and more. Being a woman in the church already puts you in the bottom 50%, but being single, without children, LGBTQ identifying, younger and or a person of colour can help marginalise your voice even more. Million Minutes recently did a listening exercise as part of youth engagement in Synod for those many young people who didn't feel able to contribute in their parishes. It just so happened that the majority of young people we spoke to with, we spoke with were young women, with a significant proportion being young women of colour. In that discussion, we came up against some really tough questions, including what's here for me? If I find community outside of the church or online, who's to say that's not the Holy Spirit in action? Why would I stick around if I feel unwelcome or unloved? Where are my role models who look and sound like me? Why exactly should I stay? These questions can be painful to hear, and myself and the facilitators find there's only so many times we can say convincingly, it's your church too, fight for it. So if the Synod is to be good news for Catholic women, or even good news for people full stop, including those who care about women, it would need to be the start of a journey that includes, celebrates, and advances young people and young women in the church. The Synod would need to represent the start of a grassroots, bottom-up cultural shift within the church that re-centers its mission and identity, 
putting the experiences of young people, of women, and of all those who have ever felt marginalized, both in society and in the church, front and center, as Jesus did. We need new epicenters that recognize that the church plays out wherever God's love is in evidence, and that most power powerfully can be seen on the so-called margins of both the church and of society. To conclude, I want to share the words of 24-year-old Catherine Bridgewood, one of our amazing speakers at our webinar exploring the experiences of young women in the church in December 21, which you can find online. Catherine concluded her powerful remarks saying, I challenge the church not to seek to bring people back. To see real change, we need to explore out there where people are living out church and its values. I agree wholeheartedly with Catherine. Revolutionizing those so-called centers is the only way to keep the richness and the diversity of experiences women of all types bring. And it's the only way to recognize, to love, and to keep a community which represents over half of God's people on earth. Thank you. Thank you very much, Daisy. Um, again, lots of fascinating insights here that uh, I hope we'll have time to discuss and explore further. Um, our next speaker is um, Penelope Middlebow, who's a member of the core team of the Root and Branch Forum, working for a safe, inclusive and just Catholic church, um, who also one of our sponsors this okay. evening. So, Thank you very much and over to you, Penelope. Thank you, Natalie. And thank you, Daisy and Tino. I mean, I agree with what you're saying. Root and branch is needed in the Catholic Church. And before answering Natalie's question about whether synodality is good for women, let me tell you a bit about who we are. Root and branch is for anyone, not just for women. And it's organized by volunteers like myself. We're an online forum and we're discovering inclusive ways of meeting together as Christians. Root and branches most commonly describe themselves as Catholics clinging on by their fingertips to the institutional church. Some though would say they were obedient parishioners developing a voice for the first time. Uh, there are priests, there are nuns, there are religious, some are excommunicated. Many have ecumenical, we have many ecumenical friends and we have support from other religions. Many have already walked, but say that we give them hope that they may one day return to a different type of church. But for all of us, Root and Branch helps us to carry forward Jesus' original teaching and hopefully, and this motivates a lot of us, to pass on the heart of Catholicism to the next generation. Is it possible? Joining Root and Branch has been described as coming home and finding the heatings on. People say, so I'm not alone. Anyway, Root and Branch was set up by, before the Pope launched his synodal pathway. Um, it was set up to hold a lay-led synod in Bristol last September, which we did. And out of that came something called the Bristol Text to Reform, which is on our website, plus all the recordings of speakers. And we had speakers like Tina on. But to the question, to answer the question, is the synodal process good for women? Well, I'd love to be able to say it was a resounding yes, but as Tina's expressed, it's not as easy as that. First of all, your synodal experience depends on your country. Australia and Germany started their synodal journey earlier and both have lay voting members, many of them women. But despite all the hard work, the Australian Plenary Council appears to have no teeth. 
Whereas the German synodal way, which does have teeth, is being briefed against widely with cries of schism. So what does this mean for us? Are these canaries down the mine? Your experience can also depend on your bishop. It can be radical. One English bishop has put the woman who wrote to the tablet saying she would refuse to pay to contribute any more to the church because she would not be complicit in her own subjugation. Well, he's put her in charge of synodal feedback. Alternatively, your bishop can try to control and shut the Holy Spirit out, holding one meeting for six people in a cathedral parish hall. Job done. That happened. Most of all, it depends on your parish priest. He can give the community free reign. I know one parish where there were 12 groups meeting to discuss their synodal feedback, one LGBTQ+, one deaf, and then they feed back to the congregation for more comments. He can be like my parish priest <clears throat> and say that synodality must be built in long term, hooray. Or he can issue a postcard and ask for two questions to be filled in online or another. He might even describe the whole thing as nebulous, nebulous and laugh it off. And when the face-to-face -face feedback sessions are held, the outcomes depend very much on whether the parish priest is there in the room. Because without him, people are most definitely freer about what they say. Even if he is present, we're heartened to hear that the taboo subjects are consistently top of the list. Women priests. And one parish meeting was unanimous. Even the traditional Latin mass devotee agreed this was long overdue. Same-sex marriage dealing with the crime of clerical abuse, marriage for divorcees, power sharing, changing the way we view priests. But, and this is what Tina was referring to, it's the priest who decides what we submit to the dean, the dean to the bishop, the bishop to the bishop's conference, the bishop's conference to the cardinal in charge of synodality. I mean, it's filter upon filter upon filter. So to conclude, I would say that the majority of women who are after all the largest marginalized group in the church, are grateful to the Pope for opening the doors to discussion, but it has motivated us, women and men together, to demand action. And that's why with Scottish Laity Network, we're holding four talks about clerical abuse called Stolen Lives to put survivors at the center of all we do. And we're encouraging what we're calling Root and Branch DIY, which are small groups of laity meeting to be the church we wish to see, to pray, learn, break bread, explore Catholic social teaching, social action, all in the spirit of Vatican II. Well, for me, that form of long-term synodality gets a resounding yes. Thanks. Thank you very much, Penelope. Wow. Um, and finally, the fourth member of our panel, um, Dr. Alana Harris, um, Director of Liberal Arts and Reader in Modern British Social, Cultural and Gender History at King's College London, um, also an honorary fellow at the Centre for Catholic Studies in Durham and the University of Divinity in Melbourne in Australia, um, and a visiting scholar at the Australian Research Council Centre for Excellence for the History of Emotions at Australian Catholic University. Um, Alana, you bring to our panel, to our conversations, the long view. Um, or what I call the long view. Um, tell us more. 
Indeed, I certainly will. Um, Penelope's given me a wonderful lead to sort of think about um, Vatican II and that long-term synodality. And I'm going to, when I'm the last speaker, show some images. Uh, so I hope someone can put my slides up, um, please. Um, so ultim ultimately, in talking about um, this synod, uh, many that are taking this long view um, have called it um, the most important uh, uh, listening um, process in 60 years, uh, the most ambitious renewal of the church. So taking us back to the Second Vatican Council, um, I'm going to use the cartoons of John Ryan, who for 40 years um, was an illustrator for the Catholic Herald, as a bit of a signpost um, and a sounding of, of where we've travelled from then. And ultimately, if this current process differs from its predecessors, and if there are differences, um, are there grounds from op optimism that emerge? So starting with these two, um, we have um, a depth sounding there in terms of representations of women in the church from 1965 um, and 1987 on the screen. The first um, shows a woman out of place, um, a housewife in the pulpit. Um, I like to think her hat's a little like a Beretta. Uh, and her pronouncement from there taps into these conversations about conservative and progressive theological wranglings, which followed the council, not then full-blown cultural wars. But you know, with respect to that uh, illustration, we have a sense of um, the notion of um, scandalizing the faithful, um, a vision of women who are adherent to the faith of our fathers, who are tribal Catholics who pray, pay and, and obey um, and silently sort of keep the church um, running, um, but are, are very much uh, sort of in, in, very rarely in the foreground. Fasting forward 20 years to the second cartoon, um, the reference point for it was the 1987 Synod of the Laity. Um, and interestingly, through that uh, cartoon, we get a sense of women's continuing roles as mainstays of the church, um, cleaning, arranging flowers, devotional piety, but in many ways, a sort of sense then of their continued marginalization from ecclesial structures um, and um, the ways in which they are not yet sort of embracing a distinctive pastoral ministry. Now, John Ryan was far from a, a feminist, and I use his cartoons because of um, a recent publication um, that I've um, put out um, exploring his vision of the Catholic 60s. Um, but he is um, a very informed commentator of sort of circulating um, ideas uh, and common take and taken for granted sort of common sensical perspectives. And here, I, I think, in terms of his representation of, of women within the church in the 60s and the 80s, we have a vision, um, almost a representational crisis of women's roles and contributions to the church. He's sketching the prosaic, the domestic, the familial. Um, this is a vision of women, perhaps not many miles away from a, a feminine genius that is often invoked um, in papal pronouncements. So looking back for me, illuminates the need to really see the women whose voices are part of this conversation and to speaking up points that we've all made, I think, to um, acknowledge women's diversity of experiences, their gifts, their professional lives, their prophetic contributions, um, not just their capacity for maternity, and to make sure that this is communicated and extracted from the synodal listening exercise. What are the differences between then and now? Um, in the 60s and the 80s, there was a sense in which women were outside the room where it happens, um, and perhaps they still are in part um, in view of that filtering process we've heard about. If I can have the next slide, please. Uh, here we move ahead um, to uh, May 1980, just following the recently completed National Pastoral Congress. Uh, the word synodality had not entered the mainstream of, um, for the Catholic lady at this point, but this was a synod, um, a gathering of over 2,000 Catholics, many of whom were women in Liverpool Cathedral, to actually interpret the council and to think about the challenges of the churches. There was an intensive two-year consultation process that preceded this conference um, involving parish representatives, bespoke diocesan structures, 
Um, and until very recently, this was um, the largest uh, and, um, and most important uh, lay consultation uh, ever um, held in this country. Bristol last year may have um, displaced that assessment. Um, so Ryan offers us four differing and increasingly cynical lines of interpretation of that Congress and its effects, the so what, what was it really about? The first um, suggests that in, it, it's interpreted as being captured by organised pressure groups. Um, here he designates them trendy lefties, but other interpretations in our contemporary moment might be possible, who articulate various demands for reform to beleaguered priests and bishops. Uh, another assessment is, is that it was a talking shop, um, offering the semblance of a listening church, a tokenistic pastoral event, auspiced by the hierarchy to placate, or as he puts it, to pretend that the laity really can influence church affairs. And I note in that representation, you've got a number of women in the audience, and indeed Ryan himself um, uh, offers a, a self-portrait there for what it's worth, in view of what he thinks, where he's going to peg his analysis. Um, is it just an ecclesial jaunt, a boozy work party for clergy, as we see in one of the illustrations? Oh, finally, um, is an example of Archbishop Derek Warlock's command of planning and logistics, the successful running being dependent on a bishop um, taking the process seriously and investing in its success. And again, we've heard about um, differences amongst um, the, the bishops conference in England and, and how that might be important here. So my own feeling is that there are important lessons and legacies to be gleaned um, with application to the present synodal, synodal consultation. But perhaps the most important for me, um, riffing off this vision um, of the National Pastoral Congress, is what we might summarise as the feedback loop um, and the event legacy. Um, and again, many of the speakers have touched on this. The National Pastoral Congress process involved seven working groups with papers, surveys, discussions, in-person sessions in parishes and dioceses, and then in Liverpool, which were minuted um, and voted upon. Alongside wide press co um, coverage and correspondence and the publication of that um, correspondence, we have a, um, a process that was communicated widely um, at the time and indeed is now archived in its entirety or mostly in its entirety in the diocesan um, repository in Liverpool. Um, it's awaiting a history for those that are looking for PhD topics or the like. Um, there was a policy report the event generated, the Easter people, which summarised the positions taken, for example, on admission of divorced and remarried Catholics to the sacraments, birth control, social justice, ordination of women, so here we have a structured and transparent evaluation and communication, um, something of a dialogue between bishops and laity and, and some follow-up. Hume and um, Warlock took this report to the General Assembly um, on the Christian Family in October 1980, um, at which it was promptly marginalised um, from the discussion and dismissed. Um, so here we have a sense in which hopes from that event were raised, um, including the unarticulation of the specific concerns of women, many of those neuralgic issues that Tina has said we still need to wrestle with, um, and immediately dashed. Um, so ultimately, these raises questions about the implementation process of whatever might come from this listening exercise um, and issues of accountability for that. And finally, um, in view of my next slide and my final slide, um, this is a cartoon from um, November 2000, um, celebrating the Jubilee or 50 years since the establishment of the World Conventions on the Lay Apostolate. And of course, the Council reinforced that with its um, decrees on the Apostolate of the Laity in Lumen Gentium. Embedded within this cartoon is a reference to, um, to the liturgical controversies. Um, and as we know, they've not gone away either. Um, there in this representation, use of the singular or plural for the Nicene Creed, um, but, the, um, but the liturgy continues to be a, um, a, a, a touch point. 
it strikes me that many of the issues um, on the ribbons emanating from the Jubilee Star, you may not be able to see from this cartoon, um, will be also subjects uh, for our synodal conversations. Uh, they read um, things like, who wants celibacy, reform, affirm, conscience is all, and human rights. But most important for me is the central banner uh, with a, a laywoman front and centre, which affirms in capital letters, we are church. So this seems to me to be uh, right and a sentiment to take into our personal engagement with the synodal consultation process. The need to amplify the voices of all Catholic laity, but especially those of women who for so long have been marginalised in consultation processes and who are still mostly peripheral to policy making and action planning. So let us pray for a beatitudinal church, which will learn from the past um, and that uh, we, we all may have eyes to see and ears to hear. Again, um, picking up Tina's opening statement. Thank you very much. Well, thank you all very much. Thank you, Alana. And um, to all the members of our panel, we're already getting some great questions in. Um, from from our audience so please keep them coming send them um through the chat um and we'll try and um get to as many as possible and in fact i would like to start with uh, the very first question that came in um from cullen um and uh celine in dublin um and actually i'd like to hear what um all of our panel members have to say uh, or would like to say to this um question is can a patriarchal church ever be truly synodal? Um, Penelope, why don't we start with you? Wow. Um, thanks, Carmen, Selena. <laughs> I, no, no. Um, I don't think it's possible. Um, and I think that the appointment of one woman who can vote at the Synod of, on Synodality in October 2023 is, um, you know, tokenism pushed to a ridiculous degree. I've, I, I have every respect for Natalie Becker, who's been put in that position. Um, I was interested listening to her today, trying to sort of research for this, that she'd said that her appointment, she felt her appointment was the next phase in a historical context that began with Vatican II. Well, that's 60 years ago. So if the phases move at this speed, um, I don't have much hope. So I think I'm with both Daisy and Alana, and I'm sure Tina, the grassroots, we've got to move, we've got to do it ourselves, really. Mm -hmm. Thank you. And um, Tina? Well, one of my concerns is definitions. I mean, we've got patriarchy and we've got synod there, and those are two contested terms anyway. I suppose I'm a pragmatist and I have a deep faith in original sin, by the way. Whatever structures we have to work in, they are not going to always work for us. I'd almost rather be dealing with the old Catholic patriarchy than what they call British democracy right now because we are always working within fallible and often corrupted human institutions. And that's certainly true of the institutional church and British democracy right now. So I want to say we can work in whatever we're given to work with, because if I didn't say that, why would I be sitting here? I mean, there's a life out there that doesn't even notice the Catholic church is doing its thing. If we're here, we have to be here because we believe we can work within the time and place we've been given. And 
um, for me, the question isn't about this big thing called patriarchy. It's a much more visceral question. What are they afraid of? Why do they closet themselves away? And I use that word intentionally in the Vatican with this terror that women will get in, this absolute terror that we will breach their defenses. What are they afraid of? And, you know, to ask these questions, I think we have to go beyond naming big bad structures because they're everywhere and really understand that we are dealing with something very primeval, something very visceral, actually, you know, that is about the culture of Catholicism. And my concern would be that um, we may be as ill-served if we swap patriarchy for well-funded American progressivism, for example. And one of my fears with the Synod is that there are going to be very well-funded progressives from um, influential American groups bringing their culture wars to Rome through the Synod. And how do we just get those voices to back off a bit on all sides? I hear enormously exciting things from women in the Sub-Saharan African church. Their bishops have told them, tackle patriarchy. We want you to do the Synod process honestly and to challenge and to bring your questions to the table. Now that's enormously exciting because for many of us, when we try to speak out, we get told, oh, it's just you aging, whinging 60s feminists. African women are really happy in the church. Well, they're not, but we've got to let them speak for themselves. Asian women, you know, there's a huge outcry among Asian women right now because Bishop Malakal of Kerala has been acquitted of raping and sexually abusing a mother superior over four years. And there's an outcry in the church in India about this, what's seen as an unjust acquittal. How will those voices get heard in the Synod? So yes, patriarchy, it's there. Right now, Boris Johnson is there. He was last time I checked. These are the, I won't say the word, but you know, they're the rather unfortunate effluent we have to deal with in our workings of the world. Let's do it. Yes, of course we can have a synod and a patriarchal church. That's what we're doing. Thank you, Tina. Um, Daisy, can a patriarchal church be synodal? What I love about this tablet webinar is you start with really light questions, really easy ones to get us all going. <laughs> um, yeah, I, yeah, to echo all the Wonderful, very articulate things Penelope and Tina have said. I mean, I'm all for smashing the patriarchy. I've got a sneaky little picture of Hillary Clinton there. And the patriarchy is around us, as Tina said, everywhere, not just in the church. It's it's it, it's articulated very clearly in the church, but it, it, ex it exists in every part of our world, unfortunately. And yeah, as Penelope said, we've just got to, you know, there are examples of, of parishes and communities, you know, showing how to express God's love in inclusive ways. There are many examples actually, not as many as I'd like to see, but it is it is possible as Penelope alluded to, like parish priests creating really inclusive spaces where, you know, it, particularly seeking out the voices of LGBTQ communities, like there is a way to do it. Um, but yeah, it, it has to come from us. It has to be the grassroots because if we wait around and wait for someone on top to show us the leadership will 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 all be dead. So um, yeah, let's let's not do that. <laughs> Lana, 
Well, just really to say, I mean, what is church? Uh, we are church. Um, this is, uh, and references to inverted pyramids. I mean, that's, uh, you know, <laughs> um, that's, I mean, not to say that the challenges are not um, real. Um, and indeed, in, in looking back to the Second Vatican Council uh, from 1964, uh, there were 23 women auditors present. Uh, so we haven't even really <laughs> racked the numbers up to sort of um, reapproach re 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 where we were 60 years ago in some ways. Um, but yes, I mean, I think we need to sort of grasp the nettle and use the mechanisms that have been proffered to us um, and ultimately then um, look to what happens to everything that comes through that process, the richness, the diversity, the vitality, the creativity, the, um, the energy, the moving of the spirit that comes through all of that and make sure that it's um, that it, it, it moves into the process. It's not filtered out of through these multiple layers of, of hierarchy. Thank you. We're already getting lots of great questions um, in. And I'd like to follow up with one from Rita. Um, uh, we've had some, some mention of the um, uh, of, of the Second Vatican Council, and um, certainly for uh, the first few years of the Second Vatican Council, there were no women present until somebody noticed. And I remember reading a book about these 23 women uh, who were there, uh, which had the wonderful title, Guests in Their Own House. Um, and Rita is asking, if we keep listing issues that need to be addressed, do we, uh, if we keep listing issues that need to be addressed, do we risk a tick list that will be addressed by agenda saying, uh, by agenda to say that's done? Um, and she follows this up by asking, is not the real problem one of place at the table? Um, and Daisy, there's a question to you uh, specifically, so maybe we can connect those. How do we get out there? How do we claim, how can Catholic women claim their place at the table? Daisy. Okay, yeah, yeah I'll start with that one. Yeah. <laughs> um, I don't know, I wish I knew. Um, I, yeah, I haven't found a way to do it perfectly myself it's a trial and everything um all I can speak to is what I have tried to do which is I've constantly tried to in the short period of time that I've been in this job push myself forward even though I either don't want to or I'm too scared or I feel like I don't really necessarily have anything particularly interesting to say and isn't that just classic being a woman as well um so I have constantly tried to look around and think if if no one else is I don't know if, in meetings or whatever if no one else is mentioning women's experiences I'll be the one to mention it and I know that everyone is probably eye rolling and saying and she goes again here we go but I just feel a responsibility to do it so yeah the claiming of the space I mean I, I yeah I'm waffling it, it's a question I think in society as well as in the church but I guess it's knowing your own worth and knowing that what you have to say and the experiences that you bring, particularly as a woman, not only matter, but have been, have not been heard really. So almost like they have to be ramped up. They have to be amplified now because we are finally just about living at a time that seems to be caring what women have to say and how they have to say it. Um, so I don't know. And if you find out, let me know, because I'd love to know. <laughs> Fantastic, thank you. And we have a question from Mary. In all the articles and papers about the Synod, there's reference to our baptism making us participants in the synodal process. But 
but also reference to the specific role of the bishops being one of discernment. Um, and discernment is in invert, inverted commas here. This leaves out any significant discernment by women. What does that say about the gifts of the spirit given to all of us at confirmation, at least five of which are essential to discernment? Um, that's a great question. Tina. Thank you. I think I'd appeal to the census for day, which, you know, is much neglected. But it goes, it has a very, very long and rich history in the church that unless a doctrine is actually accepted by those who are in good conscience keeping faith with the church, then it really is questionable whether it has doctrinal authority. And I think one of the things we must do if we're in women's organizations gathering submissions, we must make those as public as possible so that if our voices are airbrushed out or if the things we say that they don't like are airbrushed out, we can say this is not discernment, it's censorship because we are praying, we are on a pilgrimage together towards a synod, we are trying to discern what we need to do to be creative and effective and yes I completely agree discernment is is something we share and it is about the sense of the faithful being able to say you know we go with this and actually in history there have been times and I can't reel them off now when actually I think the Aryan controversy is the first example that's often given when the bishops were all over the place in what they thought might or might not be Christian doctrine. And it was the laity who actually said, no, this is what we believe. Jesus Christ is fully God and fully human or whatever happens to be the discussion of the day. And it's sometimes been the laity who have kept the bishops on doctrinal track. And I think the synod may be very much one of those occasions they, some of them, not all of them, but I'm sorry to say, I think most of them are a little out of touch. Um, and this is their chance. This is their chance. So, yes, we are all part of the, the discerning process. You know, we are, I think it was Alana who said, we're the church. You know, the institution isn't the church. We're the church. And we must make heard our voices and if they won't let us be heard we must um, amplify one another's voices that's the only thing we can do now defy their silencing thank you um we also have uh, it's, it's amazing to see so many brilliant questions coming in um we may not get to to all of them but one of the questions is um uh, was about whether uh, we will put the uh, names um, and, and details of uh, some of the organizations mentioned, um, uh, whether we'll make those available, we will. Um, and this was specifically about root and branch as well. Um, so Penelope, um, uh, a question for you. Um, how, can, um, how can we as women cross political and other boundaries to work with women we might not usually listen to, to insist that the church refounds the culture within which criminal sexual violence and other forms of abuse are embedded. I think this is connecting to um, uh, the work that Root and Branch are doing 
um, not just with women at large, if it, um, but also with uh, survivors of abuse? Um, well, I would say we need you to get in touch with us and help us because we're just volunteers. And we have started, as I was saying, this thing called Root and Branch DIY, which are these small groups of people getting together. And it can start with just two people who dare to talk to each other about things that matter. And then we say, go out and ask somebody who you wouldn't normally um, talk to and bring them in. I mean, we're all about trying to talk to the person that we haven't got to know before. We're all about learning inclusivity We've got to learn it though it's not you know it doesn't we don't know how to do it easily we don't have any answers we are just a forum and we are just encouraging people to come to us we offer a safe space an inclusive space and we're determined to fight for justice and the the work we're doing with um sexual abuse clerical abuse survivors is getting to people that i've never talked to before on twitter it's extraordinary and they feel safer there. They don't feel safe in the church. Um, so if you're interested, get in touch with us. And I'm sure one of the people watching will put the email up for you. Thank you very much. Um, we have a question from Mary um, about religious communities. Religious communities have developed over centuries the process and skills in discernment. Um, the women religious have through their work contact with people on the margins of society and of the church. It is important that leaders of women's religious orders have the same status in the synod as bishops, not one token woman, but a 50-50 participation. So the voices of um, women religious are an important part of, of the church, um, of the life of the church, um, but also this question of some of the high profile appointments as you know what can appear a very token gesture um will it what good will it actually do for all the different groups of women um within the church we've already mentioned and i'm sure there would be many more alana i wonder if you have any thoughts Absolutely. I mean, referring to those guests in their own house, um, that actually refers to um, a number of those women there were women, women religious. Um, and there were, if there's an acknowledgement in 1964 that there needs to be sort of a structural mechanism for, for those women to be part of, of um, the Episcopal conversations, um, I don't see why we can't. I mean, this is, I guess, is always my take on things in some ways as as a lay Catholic um, who has for um, quite a long time felt um, very marginalised by the institutional church, um, but as through my, um, my recovery of the Catholic tradition, engagement with the Catholic tradition, has discovered resources to be able to actually um, find levers into these conversations. Um, and ultimately, I think there is much from um, the experience of the 1960s and indeed the, the, the 80s that we can use um, as... Um, as precedent, <laughs> as, re as resources, as elements of the tradition to be able to actually then augment that tradition and advance that tradition and update that tra tradition and renew it. Um, I think there's an enormous amount of, um, for a variety of reasons, some strategic amnesia um, about the gains of the past um, and, the, and in many ways in gathering in those riches um, and actually reappraising where the spirit was blowing um, uh, in our 
um, in our um, for our um, predecessors um, and thinking about sort of the notion of the communion of saints, um, you know, we can actually sort of, you know, gather resources to be able to think through the issues, uh, the, you know, the joys and hopes and griefs and anxieties of the, of the present. Um, ultimately, too, again, thinking about the conciliar moment between 1962 and 65, there was a sense in which um, that process started with a seeming set agenda, but in the conversation and in space for conversations and, and people having um, opportunities to be part of those conversations, there were um, there was change, there was development, there was a giornamento, and, and there was this a metanoia um, around some issues sort of through that. Um, and I guess if we could find um, sort of ways in, in, the, in, the, in the processes to be able to enable um, not only just a sort of a, um, a diverse um, and multi-stranded conversation in the present, but actually think about the after too. Um, uh, many of the discussions of the council talk about it as a um, as not just a once-off event, but obviously sort of something that continues. And actually thinking about the synodal process um, as a continuing process and a, and a way and thinking about um, what happens after we sort of move through this initial phase and think about the, the afterlife um, and continuing to actually to discern the riches is important for me. And that's certainly where um, my analysis of the past would, um, would lead me to sort of to look for um, the issue of, 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 um, of what happens next. Thank you. Um... So lots of different experiences of the um, synodal process. It's being handled differently in different parts of the church. Um, I, I mean, I like this example of all the different um, discernment groups, including um, uh, one of deaf people um, and LGBT um, IQ plus people, and uh, then another listening process. So that, um, but a question from Anne. What action would you advise to women who are in the parish that is offering just one one-hour meeting with regard to the Synod? Um, Daisy, you're nodding. <laughs> oh, just because it's a really good question, because that's been something that I've been thinking about, including in my own parish, where that is slightly the case. Um, bless them. Uh, yeah, I, I, it's, it's a really tough one, but I think it, it, it it's so it is so dependent i guess on the on the appetite of the of the priest if there is any space to elbow your way in with a group of others um to create a space where there can be some contributions from some of those who maybe you haven't heard from in the parish discussion um and if there's a way i guess to submit directly to the diocese but as Penelope says, it is such a postcode lottery, depending on, you know, who's going to listen and who's going to see, read those things. So I guess at, at least when it comes to young people, what, what we're saying is even if it doesn't filter up, obviously, hopefully it does. But even just the experience of young people being able to come together and be heard by someone doesn't have to be the priest, but to be heard by someone who's a Catholic and in that community, I think is it can be really healing it can be really empowering so um I, I i think it was Anne that asked the question so Anne, if if maybe you can get together with a small group of people and put an informal advert out corral some people after mass or you know whatever if there's a facebook group i'm not sure but create a safe space where some people can come together to have a conversation even if it doesn't go further i think that is that can be radical and revolutionary in and of itself thank you well 
Um, I'm sure we could talk a lot more, and it's been really amazing to see so many interesting conversations. Um, good conversation is part of what we do um, at the Pastoral Review, um, and uh, which is a quarterly journal. Uh, if you haven't seen it, these are the last three issues. It's a quarterly journal for um, all who are involved in the mission at ministry and leadership of the church and the um, focus of our next issue um, uh, will actually be on um, Catholic women on the Sonoma pathway. Uh, so we're just in the process of uh, uh, yeah, editing that, compiling that. Um, so if you've never seen the pastoral review, um, uh, drop us a line, let us know. Um, but uh, I'd like uh, to give um, all of our panelists one final opportunity um, to uh, yeah, make a very brief statement, say something you're burning to say, um, what gives you hope in all of this? So if we go in the order in which we started, Tina. Maybe going back to that question, can there be a synodal process in a patriarchal church? It's not just about them listening to us. It is about us listening to each other, especially when we're hearing things we may be uncomfortable with. An Indian woman yesterday, an Indian theologian said to me, you know, our issue of divorce in India is completely different. Men bribe the authorities with the collusion of their priests to get divorces. And I suspect we would hear a similar story from many African women. So to give one example, you know, for some of us in the West who think that easier divorce and remarriage would be a triumph for progressive liberal Catholicism, we may be disadvantaging women in the Indian and African churches. We are an incredibly complex church and don't let anyone reduce us to a set of tick boxes. So I think listening to each other, and if we do have a public voice and are able to use it, amplifying the silenced voices, making sure they're heard is something each of us can do in this synod process to listen and if we have a platform to use it to make heard those voices that can't all are silenced yes thank you very much tina um there's still some great comments coming in um question from estelle is it true that groups can submit to rome and um from claire you do not have to participate in the synod via your parish so, um anyone can write to the vatican with their news so daisy if you were writing to the vatican <laughs> um it would be quite a long email um <laughs> yeah well i think about it's so hard to sum up what's been a really powerful hour and obviously what's a, a subject that all of us spend a lot of our time kind of thinking about and um, just that question of what still gives me hope is firstly it's heartening to see quite so many of you um here with us listening to us engaging with us um, and I'm also particularly heartened to see the gender diversity as well, because we need men on this journey. Uh, we need men making space for us. We need men listening to us. We need Catholic men recognising that what we have to say in our experiences are valid and need to be heard. Um, and what still gives me hope is that Million Minutes, I see the diversity of young women who, despite everything, despite the history, they still turn up. They still call themselves Catholic. They still you know, claim Alana's refrain of we are the church, we are church, this is our community as much as it is anyone else's. 
And that's something that I kind of sometimes when I feel hopeless and that happens quite a lot, I think if they can do it, I can do it too. Um, so keep the faith, everyone. And uh, yeah, thank you so much for, for being here and listening to us. Thank you. Penelope, um, postcard to the Vatican. Yeah, um, just one quick thing. Several people have told us recently with the work we're doing that survivors will be the future of the church. They will make sure there is a future for the church. And I can't quite unpick that, but there's something extraordinary about that statement. And I think it means that if we support them and try and work for justice and where we will be taken, holy, where the Holy Spirit takes us, I don't know. I think we all know in our hearts that this isn't something that we can just think has been dealt with and has gone away or was from the past. And if we start with something like that, where we are compassionate about other people, that may lead us somewhere very hopeful, I hope. Thank you. And finally, Alana, a postcard to the Vatican. Well, um, maybe the margins is where it's happening. Uh, and uh, the notion of we are the church, what, what is church, what is centre, what is periphery, um, ultimately events like this and, and many others that are providing um, spaces and opportunities and avenues to be able to engage with that diversity of our church and to embrace it uh, is, um, is what gives me hope and, um, and how one clings on despite everything. Thank you very much. Well, the, what an amazing hour it's been. Thank you all very much for coming. Um, thank you um, to the members of our panel. Um, and thank you also to um, our sponsors. So yes, um, uh, the Jesuits in Britain, um, Root and Branch, um, and uh, the, there's been the Root and Branch um, uh, webpage in the chat. And also Hinsley Hall, a hotel and pastoral and conference centre in the Diocese of Leeds. Um, so no doubt also uh, a place where many good conversations take place. Um, uh, Amanda is just sharing um, a uh, slide about uh, some events that are coming up. Um, talking of the um, voice of women religious uh, we've, or, or all religious. Uh, there's an event with Christopher um, Lamb, who's uh, the tablet's uh, Rome correspondent, um, and various uh, leaders of religious orders. And coming from the Pastoral Review next week, um, Robots, Drones and Smart Churches, Catholic Social Teaching and the Artificial Intelligence Revolution with Sean McDonough, um, who's the author of a book. Um, on artificial intelligence and Catholic social teaching. Thank you all very much and good night. Mm -hmm.